simple solution is that we can see that not only is Tertullian doing this, like um, interpreting these ways, we can actually trace this back and we can, we can prove Irenaeus did it, Justin Martyr did it, Clement of Rome did it, uh, the author of Hebrews does it, uh, the Apostle Paul does it, uh, we see Jesus doing it in Mark um, 12, 35 through 37. In light of that, um, those who have any kind of confessional interest, right, anyone who, is, who would um, be involved in biblical studies and who believes um, it's in some way authoritative, um, has a difficult time saying that this is um, something that's just an eisegesis, or that it's, not, that it's something that is just purely an imposition on the Old Testament, uh, because we have a lot of authoritative attestation, right, from within the, the New Testament itself, uh, that this is exactly how they were reading the text. And that it has uh, that it had momentous um, import for the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. When we approach the doctrine of the Trinity, well, in my experience at least, we often approach the doctrine of the Trinity in a very formulaic way, sometimes a very artificial way. We tend to put the pieces together and say, well, Scripture says God is one, and Scripture also says there are Father, Son, and Spirit. And sometimes we'll be sophisticated enough to say, well, He's one essence and three persons, and more or less, we end up with the doctrine of the Trinity. But actually, when we look at the way theologians of the past have articulated the doctrine of the Trinity, it's far more organic than that. It's not so much a mathematical formula, let alone a, a, an addition problem. Actually, the doctrine of the Trinity is very much essential to the whole storyline of Scripture. In fact, the whole story of redemption presupposes the Trinity itself. So when we come to the doctrine of the Trinity, we need to maybe change our approach and ask ourselves the question, well, how does Scripture itself actually reveal not just what the Trinity does, but who the Trinity is? Sometimes when we approach Scripture, we will assume, well, you know, we have to somehow find a specific text that spells out the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, if that's our approach, we will be sorely disappointed. When we look at the story of redemption, what we discover is that, yes, the, the triune God is manifested in fullest measure when we come to, say, uh, the opening of the Gospels and the incarnation of Christ, and then we think of Acts, for example, and the descent of the Holy Spirit. But is the Trinity just something that is invented or created out of the, the minds of the New Testament authors, or are these New Testament authors actually understanding and receiving their doctrine of the Trinity from their own scriptures, from what we call today the Old Testament canon? And is it even possible that as they look back on the Old Testament, say the Psalms, for example, that they are noticing that the, the triune divine author himself is speaking? In fact, perhaps they even go further to say 
uh, there's multiple persons, divine persons, in fact, speaking to one another through the very human authors that we're reading about. Well, sometimes uh, this reading or this hermeneutic or basically this observation of the New Testament authors of the Old Testament is sometimes called prosopological exegesis. And and there's all kinds of caricatures out there in the evangelical and non-evangelical worlds as to, well, what is that and what does it mean? What does it not mean? And sometimes those caricatures do more harm than good. But in reality, we see this form of exegesis deeply rooted in the church fathers as they understand not just their doctrine of the Trinity, but a proper understanding of hermeneutics and reading the Bible as an entire whole, as a unit. Well, these are deep questions, and I've asked Matthew Bates to come on the Credo podcast to help us understand what prosopological exegesis and hermeneutics is all about. And perhaps he might even help us understand how this form of reading gets us to a more organic understanding of the Trinity, one that's rooted in Scripture and helps us to see uh, all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Matthew Bates is Associate Professor of Theology at Quince University. He teaches uh, Bible classes, but also early Christian literature. He also teaches classes in Western religion and church history and even Christian spirituality. He is an award-winning author. Perhaps you've seen some of his books. Uh, The book that uh, we will, uh, I want to draw your attention to is called The Birth of the Trinity, published with Oxford University Press. But he's also written many other books, including Gospel Allegiance and Salvation by Allegiance Alone. He has a podcast, a theology and Bible podcast of, of his own, in which he is the co-host, called On Script. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the Credo Podcast. Hey, thank you so much, Matthew. It's, it's always a delight to talk about the Trinity, um, but I think we all need to acknowledge that talking about the Trinity is hard, right? And uh, if we make one little, um, you know, uh, error in our, our discussion, you know, and I say homoousius rather than homoousius, uh, <laughs> then I'm an Arian and a heretic. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's always a delight to talk about these deepest mysteries, um, but at the same time, um, I think we all realize that talking about the Trinity is the great mystery and is challenging. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, so often when, you know, whether I'm teaching in church or uh, walking into a classroom, on the one hand, I want to, you know, give my students or, or churchgoers a sense of the mystery of the doctrine of the Trinity. But on the other hand, I also want to say, let's be very, very precise and careful and walk slowly uh, because we don't want to make a crucial mistake. Sometimes even though, like you mentioned, a little mistake even in a word, can actually have huge, huge theological and uh, theological consequences. So I couldn't agree with you more. You know, it, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you and, and allow our listeners to hear you is because here you are uh, teaching Bible classes. Of course, you have uh, a great interest in theology as well, but you're, you're teaching uh, books of the Bible and uh, looking at the Bible as a whole, and yet you are writing, uh, writing works on the Trinity, which is not something that uh, biblical scholars often do, but you are, in an important way, I think, uh, you are kind of laying a bridge between the two disciplines, between Bible and theology, and you're helping us uh, to understand, well, how does God actually reveal himself in a way that, you know, doesn't just uh, pop up at one particular verse, but actually spans the entire canon. So let me just start with this question. 
you know, when you are writing a book like The Birth of the Trinity, and you're looking at biblical scholarship, and you're looking at theological scholarship, what are you seeing? What's what's missing? And uh, what what try what kind of hole are you trying to fill as you approach not just the Trinity but hermeneutics? Well, yeah, that's a, a big question and a great question. Um, yeah, the book project, um, The Birth of the Trinity, um, really sprang out of earlier work that I'd done, um, which was my dissertation work, and that was published with, uh, under a different title um, called The Hermeneutics of the Apostolic Proclamation. Uh, and so I was doing this intense work for a dissertation on, on Paul and Scripture. And um, as I was doing it, I was sort of looking at different models um, for how um, – Paul, um, in certain places, identifies um, Christ to be the speaker of a psalm, um, and this is something that had been noted by other biblical scholars, um, but it, um, there weren't a lot of rich models available, um, like the leading model to discuss this, um, really the two leading models, one, Richard Hayes' model, um, who's a well-known biblical scholar, um, used essentially a typological explanation to explain how it could be that um, that the Christ could appear as a speaker, saying that this is, um, you know, like a, a, a patterning that we find, um, and probably some of your listeners are familiar with typological explanations. And then A.T. Hansen um, argued that it was a, that Christ was just really present, like a real presence model in the Old Testament. Um, but that, that also was kind of a thin claim, as um, it, he never really teased out what that could possibly mean for Christ to be really present. Um, so anyway, I was in search of other models to try to explain um, the clear data that shows, I think, that we do clear, clearly have evidence that Jesus um, or the Christ was understood to be a speaker through the Psalter. Um, and as I was doing that, I was also reading the early church fathers um, and seeing that they actually uh, interpreted Paul's interpretation of the Old Testament um, in certain specific ways that suggested a new model. So um, the, the book project kind of emerged out of um, you know a deep study of Scripture itself, um, how Paul was using the Old Testament, and then how Paul's use of the Old Testament was received by the earliest church. Um, and in coming um, to work on that, I realized that uh, there might be another model available, um, and it was a little bit discussed um, by some um, some historians of the early church beyond the Bible era um, by um, a German scholar, Carl Andreessen, had discussed this, a French scholar, Marie-Joseph Rondeau, uh, had discussed this as well. Um, and um, but they hadn't really drawn those insights back into the New Testament. And so I, I looked at some of that data and tried to enrich it and then um, apply those insights to the New Testament. Uh, and that's how this prosopological exegesis model emerged. Now, for our listeners who haven't heard of prosopological exegesis, or maybe they've heard of it, but uh, they're suspicious, or you know, that perhaps they've only heard caricatures, could you just start us off and just quickly define prosopological exegesis? Yeah, so prosopological exegesis is a reading strategy that is looking for dialogical shifts um, that are perhaps unmarked, perhaps marked um, in an earlier inspired text. So um, there's an assumption baked into that, and the assumption is that ancient readers believed that sometimes inspired authors, as they were writing, um, would slip into the guise of another person um, as part of a technique of rhetoric or persuasion, uh, or this was also maybe perhaps rooted in um, dramatic strategies that connect to theater, um, as they obviously, the ancient Greeks, had their theater traditions and things like that. Um, a variety of ways it could emerge, a variety of backgrounds, but um, certainly 
certainly there was an assumption that um, an author might um, begin to speak from another person. Um, and so prosopological exegesis would be the search for that, right? Uh, proper, if, if an ancient author is slipping into another person, right, well then as an ancient reader, you need to, you need to be able to be attuned to that, to be able to find those places of dialogical shift, uh, even if they're unmarked. Uh, and we have evidence, for instance, that interpreters of Homer um, were um, interested in the way in which Homer sometimes would slip into an, an unmarked character and would speak from the perspective of uh, this, this alternative character. We have ancient rhetoricians who said this is a good technique to use in the forum when you're trying to persuade an audience. You might speak from the person of virtue um, or from the city of Athens rather than speaking from your own person, and you might adopt this alternative person in order to try to persuade. Um, so, yeah. Uh, certainly we see this happening with the Bible, like Philo of Alexandria interprets the Bible in this way. Um, we have clear evidence that he does so. Um, and I argue that we find um, very clear evidence this actually happens throughout the New Testament. We can find evidence of the Gospels of Jesus reading the Old Testament in this way, evidence that Paul read the Old Testament in this way, evidence that the author of Hebrews read it in this way, evidence that the book of Revelation uh, is read in this way. So, uh, yeah, it's a... It's a it, Cosmological exegesis then is this recovery of this ancient reading technique. Now, you mentioned something just so fascinating here, and that is when the human author is speaking, you take like a David, for example, though it could be any number of, of uh, biblical authors, uh, when they are speaking, they, of course, understand that they are, you know, they are the ones speaking, but then they also have this moment in which they may uh, may, maybe you can uh, rephrase this better than I can, but they, so to speak, take on another voice or perhaps multiple voices, even the divine voice itself, uh, in which they are actually, we're not just hearing, say, a David, but we're actually hearing divine persons or a divine author speak to, to one another. Now, in my mind at least, that seems to assume that uh some of the basics, some of the theological basics of a Christian understanding of, say, inspiration, or perhaps we could go beyond that and just talk about divine authorial intent, that whenever we're reading the text, that this isn't, uh, you know, say David, for example, David seems to understand uh, there's actually a, a divine speaker here as well. These aren't just David's random thoughts that he's kind of inventing. Uh, now, when they, when you take someone like um, an Old Testament author and they begin to speak in this way, what, how would you describe that? I mean, how does that assume? What, what does that assume about the divine speaker himself? Yeah. Um... Let me um, maybe draw our attention to a passage, and then I'll circle back and try to answer that question about what it, what it might assume, like what kind of um, reality right, is presupposed by the author that might allow that move. Um, the passage that I think is most helpful here is in Acts 2, um, where we have Peter's Pentecost speech, right? and um, as Peter is proclaiming the gospel, um, he cites Psalm 16, um, verses 8 through 11. And as part of that, um, he's he's talking about how God raised up um, uh, Jesus, having loosed him from the pangs of death. Right? It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then he says, David himself speaks of this, saying, I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand so that I may not be shaken, uh, and so forth. Right, uh, and then he goes on to say, um, "You won't abandon my soul to Hades, nor let um, my, um, your holy one see decay." 
right? You've made known to me the ways of life, the paths of life. Um, and then he, then he clarifies, he says, brothers, I may say to you confidently of the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And here's the key part. He says, being therefore a prophet, and so he identifies that David was actually speaking as a prophet in this capacity. So whenever he was speaking in Psalm 16, 8 through 11, and um, he, he was actually not speaking from his own vantage point. He was speaking as a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He says, he foresaw and spoke the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, and his flesh did not see corruption. Right? And so, but when we go back and we track out the psalm, right, um, this is addressed to a you in the text. Right, uh, and so it's clear that there's some sort of dialogical assumption uh, that this was actually really being spoken by the Father to Jesus, um, and um, and so we have this language, right, of um, of the Father speaking to Jesus, Jesus speaking back. Uh, that's um, when I says, "I saw the Lord always before me; He's at my right hand, that I may not be shaken." This would be understood to be the Christ then speaking to God the Father, right, in some in some capacity in the Psalm. So um, it seems like Scripture itself points us to the prophetic intention there. Um, as David is speaking from an alternative person. Um, so what kind of world does that assume, right? That was, uh, that was your question, right? What kind of world does that assume? Um, well, the language that I've, I've kind of come to in, in speaking about this would be to kind of mention different horizons. Um, and to say, on the one hand, we have the prophetic horizon, right, where we can talk about um, King David or Isaiah slipping into an alternative person as inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so, right? Um, and that, there's a, a horizon of history when that really happened, right? And that was a, like part of the scripture process, right? But um, it seems like they're invoking some sort of theodramatic world. That's the language that I've, I've settled on here, um, partly because we don't have any like inter internal like language that is clearly given to us by Scripture or by the early church to, this, to, to identify this world, but it seems to involve a, a, a transcendent sort of almost eternal or perhaps eternal perspective on um, God and God's uh, internal life, right, where we have moments where the Father speaks to the Son, and sometimes these moments are uh, before time began. Um, or are, 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 are described in a way that's at least congenial to that. Sometimes they're about future events that would pertain to, for instance, Christ's session at the right hand of God, uh, where he's seated at the right hand after, after uh, the crucifixion, right? So sometimes it's a position in terms of um, the moment of the incarnation. So we have these different moments. Uh, so it seems like there's a theodramatic world that the prophet is invited to oversee or to step into in some way. Um, and then we have the kind of the realized horizon where um, we would speak about these events actually transpiring in space and time. Um, there, there, there is a time in which it's appropriate for those words to find a landing, I guess, within the whole of God's arrangement of salvation history. Mm. Well, since you have uh, brought up a text, I can't, I can't resist at this point uh, the temptation to, to introduce a text of my own, and I'm, I'm sure it's going to be familiar to you. Uh, and that is Psalm 2, a psalm uh, that I think many of our listeners may be familiar with, in which uh, oftentimes it's, it's called the reign of the Lord's anointed. And uh, here we see uh, the king uh, sitting on his throne, and we actually see different speakers uh, speaking at different points. Uh, for example, uh, in verse 4, it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Here he's talking about the nations who are opposing uh, his anointed one. 
Uh, and he says the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then he says something very fascinating. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And, th- and then from there he, he goes on to talk about the relationship between his son and um, how his son stands in judgment over these very nations. Now, uh, for those of our listeners who are familiar with how this how Psalm 2 is picked up in the, the New Testament, uh, our minds go, for example, to Hebrews chapter 1, in which the author of Hebrews also has something to say about a son or the son of God, in which he describes him as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the one who upholds the universe by his word and power. And then it's very fascinating that he then uh, quotes from Psalm 2 to show that, well, this son is not just any ordinary son. and In fact, he's not just on the same level as the, the angels, heavenly beings. He's actually far superior to the angels, a point the author of Hebrews is going to make again and again. And, and, and so he says in verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Now, uh, perhaps you can shed some light on uh, these two texts. And let me just ask you this. In light of what you just said, how, how does prosopological exegesis serve us at this point when we're thinking through not just how the, the author of Hebrews is understanding the Son, but how he's appropriating and even appealing to uh, these divine voices in Psalm 2. Yeah, um, you know, we get into sort of the nitty-gritty textual details, and that's um, where the conversation is often most um, you know, contested and interesting, right? But uh, yeah, you do point out that in Psalm 2, um, we do have a dialogical shift. Right. Um, we have um, in you know verse uh, the, the the first portion of the psalm. Right. We have um, the Lord um, speaking. Right. Or uh, he who resides in heaven will laugh at them. The Lord will mock them. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. Right. But then when verse six, um, we have someone else that's clearly not the Lord God who says, "But I was established by king by him on Zion, his holy mountain." Um, and so this clearly doesn't refer to God Himself being established as king, but um, to uh, the Messiah in some capacity or to the Davidic king, it's unclear in context, right? Um, but then um, we have these words, right, um, that says, the Lord said to me, my, you are my son today, I've begotten you. Um, the thing that's interesting is it's the, it's the king himself who's reporting the prior speech of the Lord to him, right? It's not the Lord, um, like if we take a surface reading, right, of, of the baptism of Jesus, right, you are my son, you know, today, uh, you know, um, today I've begotten you, or like I've, sometimes we find that language in at least some traditions, right, but um, you are my son whom I love with you, I'm well pleased, is what we'd find, for instance, in Mark, um, and uh, the the, it's clearly an allusion to Psalm 2-7, right? Um, and so, you know, as part of that, like, you are my son language, um, one of the things that's interesting is it's actually the son who says that in the psalm, right? Uh, the son is the one who reports the father's words to him. Um, as the father, uh, uh, the son says that at some previous time, right, uh, that um, that the Lord said to me, right, you are my son. So he's actually reporting the prior speech that God spoke to him. 
Um, so as we kind of like think about the, the kind of the multiple layers of of, of dialogue time that's in, in, involved in such a construction, um, it helps us to realize something more complex is going on here than a surface reading um, might might I guess lend, we might lend ourselves to an, an easy solution uh, when we could actually like look and go deeper. Uh, one of the things that's interesting as I was doing research on this um, Psalm 2:7. And its reception. Um, one of the things that was interesting is that the early church uh, fathers seemed like they were more careful readers than uh, many of our contemporaries have been, as they note um, that this is actually reported speech, consistently note it. And I kind of trace through how we see that happening in a whole variety of texts, everything from um, Hebrews uh, to uh, Irenaeus to Justin Martyr to Clement of Rome, uh, that they identify this reported dimension of the speech. Um, so, yeah, you're right. So, whenever we move to Hebrews, right, and we have like the, the you are my son today I've begotten you reference in Hebrews 5 uh, we have the other one in Hebrews 1 5 um, that this seems to uh, be predicated on under, understanding that the son spoke these words to the father um, and that these were words that the son spoke to the father about the father's prior speech to him right um, which allows um, for a kind of timeless transcendence to all this now of course when we talk about a text like Hebrews 1 uh, or Psalm 2, uh, this these divine speakers, this whole discussion uh, then raises bigger questions about the doctrine of the Trinity, which, of course, you've addressed uh, before. When we look at Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews, uh, and you hinted at this a minute ago, isn't saying that, well, you know, at some point um, this Psalm 2 is just referring to, you know, Jesus becoming the Son of God or maybe being adopted as the Son of God. Um, in fact, the whole divine dialogue or theodramatic dialogue, as you've called it, seems to assume, especially in, the, in, in light of uh, how Hebrews is using Psalm 2, it seems to assume this, is, this dialogue is actually taking place beyond uh, the incarnation, beyond time itself. Uh, now, this brings us into discussions of Jesus's preexistence, but in light of this what I, I would call a Trinitarian dialogue, it also uh, opens our eyes not just to Jesus's pre divine preexistence, but to uh, a Trinitarian uh, understanding of personhood. And ultimately, uh, in light of Psalm 2, where he, he says, I have begotten you, ultimately the uh, Christian categories of, uh, say, the Father is unbegotten, and the Son is eternally begotten from the Father. Now, in, you're in the biblical studies world interacting with so many different, um, so, so much scholarship. When you have uh, approached a text like this, I am guessing that uh, most colleagues in your world are not wanting to go that direction. Perhaps they think, oh, that's theology, you know, let's, that's an imposition on the text. Um, or, or perhaps, perhaps worst case scenario, that's eisegesis. But it seems like what you are arguing is actually this is quite uh, organic to the divine dialogue itself. Can you flesh that out a little bit? 
Yeah, there there actually really hasn't been a lot of negative pushback to the work, surprisingly. Um, you know, I, I think that I, at least I hope, um, maybe that's partly because I show, at least try to show how thoroughly this is rooted in um, not just the early church fathers, but the New Testament, and it sort of emerges um, from there, and that the early church fathers do this too. But you're right, it is foundational to the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, the very first, um, you know, a person who gives us the language of Trinitas in, in Latin, like that we get our word Trinity from, is Tertullian. Um, and in his um, letter um, uh, or his treatise against Praxius, um, he, um, this is where we find that first um, reference to the doctrine of the Trinity. He wrote that in around 213, uh, approximately. Um, and uh, when he's doing this, when Tertullian like uses this language of the Trinity for the first time, it's actually in the context of doing prosopological exegesis. Um, he explicitly is, is um, exegeting Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, uh, explicitly interpreting Isaiah 45, and so on, uh, in a prosopological way, um, in, uh, along the lines that I've, I've, um, we've been teasing out here. Uh, this is what Tertullian says. He says, so in these texts, few though they be, yet the distinctness distinctiveness of the Trinity, the Trinitata, is clearly expounded, for there is the Spirit himself who makes the statement, the Father to whom he makes it, and the Son of whom he makes it. Um, and um, I think the strength of the prosopological solution is that we can see that not only is Tertullian doing this, like um, interpreting these ways, we can actually trace this back and we can, sh we can prove Irenaeus did it, Justin Martyr did it, Clement of Rome did it, uh, the author of Hebrews does it, uh, the Apostle Paul does it. Uh, we see Jesus doing it in Mark um, 12, 35 through 37. In light of that, um, those who have any kind of confessional interest, right, anyone who is, who would um, be involved in biblical studies and who believes um, it's in some way authoritative, um, has a difficult time saying that this is um, something that's just an eisegesis, right, that it's, not, that it's something that is just purely an imp imposition on the Old Testament, uh, because we have a lot of authoritative attests right, from within the, the New Testament itself, uh, that this is exactly how they were reading the text, and that it has, uh, that it had momentous um, import for the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, so the interesting thing is that the scholarship had sort of lost that thread, had, um, had failed to see uh, that this was uh, uh, really foundational to the doctrine of the Trinity, um, and in really important ways. Like, why do we, why did the church settle, for instance, on the idea that it's best to speak of God's threeness in terms of persons, or later the traditional use hypostases, um, why the person metaphor? Like, well, why not why not talk about God and say like, well, God is uh, one God, but God is three powers, or God is three angels, or God is um, three, um, you know, um, like sites of consciousness, or whatever you might want to term. Why did why did the church seize on the person metaphor? Well, it would seem they did so partly because of the prosopological maneuvering that was being done that led to the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, it was because they were reading dialogical shifts. They were reading speaking persons in the Old Testament. So, yeah, I, I think it's um, foundational to um, the doctrine of the Trinity. And there's there's actually been more um, scholarship beginning to build on these ideas than, than really – I haven't seen a lot of critique. Um, there, there's been a really interesting study done by Kyle Hughes uh, recently um, called How the Spirit Became God uh, that um, looks at – prosopological exegesis and how that contributed not just to like the birth of the Trinity uh, in, you know, kind of the narrow sense of the father and the son speaking, but like involving the spirit much more.
Forum. Um, uh, Madison Pierce uh, has has written a book on Hebrews and prosopological exegesis. So I think I think we're catching we're catching some some momentum forward here uh, with these ideas, and we'll see uh, maybe as more people jump on board, there'll be even more pushback, but not a lot yet. You know, I think this is so, so important because oftentimes, at least in my world, which is more systematic theology and historical theology, uh, oftentimes uh, systematic theologians get accused of, well, you know, this language of personhood or uh, language of eternal generation. Um, this, is, this is just a, uh, you know, this is... This is just a, an external yeah, category. Greek category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A Greek I, category, especially, right? That's the, the move usually made. Like, well, these, the, the, you know, the Hebrew people didn't weren't interested in eternity, and you're sort of imposing all this. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, usually, the objection at this point is, well, you're just looking to the fathers, and they're just overly influenced by Greek philosophy, and uh, these are Greek categories coming through, and then you're reading them back into scripture. But uh, in light of what you've just said, uh, actually, I think we want to say no. No, that's actually not what's happening uh, when we are looking. Yeah, when we're looking at whether it's a doctrine like uh, eternal generation, uh, this is actually coming out of the canon itself and the way that the divine persons, uh, in this case, you know, you think of uh, Psalm 2 and Hebrews 1. In this case, in which these divine persons are actually, we're, we're almost eavesdropping on their conversation, and it seems to be a very eternal conversation that has, of course, implications for salvation history, but is originates, you know, beyond salvation history in the the very imminent council of of the of the Godhead. Now, it's it's interesting that you mentioned some of these other um, some of these other contributions, Kyle Hughes and Madison Pierce. I'm starting to notice in my world that it's also popping up more and more in uh, systematic treatments of the Trinity because they're recognizing that, well, we need to begin to show that uh, these aren't categories that are just, you know, coming out of, say, Greek philosophy. Actually, these are categories that are innate and intrinsic to the whole canon to the way that the Old Testament is read in, in light of the New Testament, the New Testament is reading the Old Testament. And so in that, in that light, let me just ask you a more probing question. How, how did we get to this point? Now, this is a bigger, more hermeneutical, you know, angle. How did we get to this point? Uh, I see it, especially within evangelicalism, where uh, we've, for whatever reasons, we seem to be in terms of our hermeneutic and our doctrine of Trinity, we seem to be very suspicious uh, towards a prosopological reading. Uh, as you look back at kind of the history of hermeneutics uh, over the last 100, maybe even 200 years, would you put your finger on certain, certain uh, movements or shifts that explains this suspicion? Well, certainly, I mean, we would want to say the rise of the historical grammatical method um, with its sort of relentless pursuit of um, authorial intention and history um, and like trying to ground all of our interpretations in there um, is on the one hand a necessary corrective and on the other hand, there's some dangers there. Um, like on the one hand, we, we would always, I think, want to affirm that whatever God's message to us might be through the text, it's a message through um, God's message to specific 
people in, in, in ancient times, right? That if we evacuate um, the historical horizon so much so that um, Paul's letter to the Romans couldn't actually have been meaningful to the ancient Roman people, right? Um, and we make it purely a word to us, right? We've gone astray. Um, and the historical, the historical kind of grammatical method, um, its strength is to recognize that and to really root our um, interpretations of scripture uh, in history in such a way that, no, it has to be a word to them too. Like whatever word it is to us, if, if, it, if it wasn't a word to them, then we've gone astray, something's wrong. Um, the danger, of course, in, in that is that um, if, we're, if, if, the, if the full Christian witness is true, right, that God is triune, he's always been triune, he didn't start being triune whenever um, with the incarnation and with, uh, when with the sending of the Spirit, that's when we historically, uh, the mission of God, like, caused us to realize God's triunity as God further reveals himself. And then in looking back, we can see uh, indications that he was triune all along. That would be, um, I think, a fair way of putting together our theology. Um, I think it's, it's whenever we um, stop short of that, and we are so historicized in our understanding that we say that, like, well, because God reveals himself as, as triune in history with the sending of the Son and the sending of the Spirit, and it's those experiences and that further revelation, um, it's only then that we, um, we realize that God is triune so that we then can't look backwards at further hints of his triunity. Um, that's where we go astray, because certainly in God's revelation of himself as triune, right, um, he, he, he didn't start being triune there. That's part of the revolution, revelation, right? So I think we're fully authorized in going backward to look, um, to see uh, hints and signals that, in fact, he was triune all along. And that's not an illegitimate task, because God superintends the whole divine economy, right? He, he, he superintends the process of Scripture formation. He superintends um, all of that, right? The process of, of history's unfolding, our role within that, um, but, you know, in terms of the human people, both ancient and, and, and contemporary. Um, so we have to have a robust sense of God's divine economy, I think, as a corrective. Um, when we have that in place, it allows us to sort of uh, to look and see, like, in light of all that God's trying to do, if indeed the climax of what he was trying to do was uh, by the sending of the king who is the son, right, um, then we shouldn't be surprised if, in fact, um, there are, are, are um, hints and, 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 um, and indications of that in the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to throw one more text at you because uh, maybe some of our listeners at this point are saying, okay, you know, I'm, I'm starting to understand what prosopological exegesis is, is all about or what's it, what it's trying to uh, bring to the surface when we're reading uh, the Old Testament or the New Testament. Uh, but maybe they're still a little bit suspicious as to, you know, exactly where we're seeing uh, this prosopological reading across the canon, uh, I can't help but think of uh, Luke chapter 20, uh, in which, of course, you see this uh, dialogue, uh, a very tense dialogue, actually, between uh, Jesus and some of the Sadducees. Uh, the context here is uh, the resurrection. But then uh, as they uh, begin to press Jesus, uh, Jesus actually takes them uh, to, to a much well, he takes them back to the Old Testament, but to uh, a divine dialogue itself within the Old Testament canon, uh, and that is uh, Psalm 110, one of the, the psalms that tends to be quoted, uh, well, 
more than other psalms uh, across the New Testament. Uh, in verse 41, Jesus says, how can they, uh, he, he basically at this point is, is uh, asking them a question in reverse here, and he says to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make uh, your enemies your footstool. Now here he's uh, quoting Psalm um, Psalm two, I believe, but uh, Psalm one ten. Psalm one ten. I'm sorry, Psalm one ten. Yeah. Uh, when you look at, in light of our discussion, when you look at Psalm one ten, um, how is Jesus using it, and what is he saying? Uh, not just about, say, his enemies at this point, but about his uh, his relation, maybe he, even his ongoing, but even. Uh, pre-existing relation with the Father. Yeah, um, so, yeah, one of the things that's interesting in this Psalm 1, um, in this this use of Psalm 110, in the Markan version rather than the Lucan version, it's even more explicit as as Jesus' words are slightly different. He just says, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, that's what it says in Luke, it says in Mark, but David himself speaking by means of the Holy Spirit um, is is the language that's used. So it's a a little bit more um, overt that this is like a prophetic move, right, that David's making, like that's the Spirit's working through him to allow this speech. Um, that's, that's clarified a little bit in the Markin version. But yeah, the Lord said to my Lord, um, obviously then, um, as as we're, we're seeing how Jesus interprets it, right, um, the, the, the first Lord, right, um, has to be um, the Lord God, right, said to my Lord, um, is clearly um, the Lord of David, as David s- says this, right? Um, and so it has to be somebody greater than David. That's sort of the force of the argument, right? The sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Um, uh, obviously is uh, the statement of, 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 of ruling in this sort of sovereign way. Um, yeah, one of the things that's interesting, though, as you sort of mentioned, like the eternal dimension here, um, as the text continues, um, Psalm 110, um, like Jesus has just cited the beginning of it, right? But um, as the psalm continues, it talks about the Lord God sending forth your rod of power um, from Zion. Um, and this we can see as addressed to this, my Lord, right, who's greater than David. And then we can understand David to be speaking in the person of God uh, to this, uh, my Lord, again in the text, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies, with you as the sovereign authority on the day of your power, in the midst of the bright splendors of the Holy One, from uh, Holy Ones from the womb. And then here's the key line, before the dawn bearing morning star appeared, I begot you. Um, so there's this language of begottenness um, that actually is correlate with Psalm 2-7, right? Um, you are my son, today I have begotten you, like that language of um, the begottenness. Um, here it's actually located before the dawn bearing morning star appeared. Um, this is a, this, we get into some technical details here as, um, as some of that language here of the begotten language. Um, there's different ways of pointing the Hebrew text, um, and so there's... Uh, yeah, I can't really get delve into the technical discussions there, um, but the Septuagint recognizes this as "I begot you," ex in the gaze of Seth, 
Um, and um, it's, most scholars affirm that that was the Masoretic understanding at that time, and that there was an alternative vowel pointing that was introduced, maybe a, partly over Christian concerns. Now, that's been disputed, too. Um, but nevertheless, the, the important point is that we see an eternal dimension here, right? That uh, this mention of before the dawn-bearing uh, morning star appeared, I begot you, seems to suggest, um, although not, it doesn't use the, the language of eternal generation, it certainly seems to lend itself to that kind of explanation, right? As uh, before the, the dawn-bearing morning star appeared, um, so before even the morning star was in existence, it would seem, right, um, this begottenness happened. Uh, so uh, that's, that does suggest an origin in time, but it doesn't actually locate an origin in time. It says even before that, in some timeless almost way. So although we don't invoke a, a Greek concept of eternal um, here as part of this text, certainly the, the, the Hebrew concept underlying it like, seems to suggest some kind of eternal idea. We've been talking to Matthew Bates, uh, not just about the doctrine of the Trinity, but about our own exegesis and hermeneutic, how we approach uh, the Trinity through the Old Testament and the New Testament's reading of the Old Testament. I hope you've been encouraged by this conversation, encouraged to actually dig deeper uh, into uh, not just, uh, say, a systematic reading of uh, the Trinity, but to understand how that systematic development of the doctrine of the Trinity is actually very organically grounded uh, in the Old Testament canon and how the New Testament authors, they aren't, say, inventing the doctrine of the Trinity or ideas like eternal generation. These, these aren't uh, uh, read back into the text. Actually, they are, they are seen, uh, these very concepts and many others, as intrinsic to the way that, say, uh, there's a divine dialogue between persons, divine persons, between Father and Son, as we've seen from some of these examples. And that divine dialogue is then portrayed and even voiced by the human author himself. We've seen that with David. I would encourage you, if you want to dig deeper uh, and not only understand the Trinity, but understand, uh, grab a, really uh, grasp a, a better understanding of hermeneutics itself, uh, I would encourage you to pick up Matthew Bates' book, The Birth of the Trinity, published by Oxford University Press, and work through the many, many biblical examples he gives. Let me just ask you one more question uh, as, we, as we conclude our time together, and that is this. If readers want to go deeper, maybe they've, they're reading your book, The Birth of the Trinity, uh, they're kind of chewing on this, this uh, idea of prosopological reading or exegesis. Uh, you've mentioned, Matthew, that uh, in, in your own research, the fathers were so helpful as you started to wrestle uh, with the text and, and how that text displays the Trinity. Was there uh, a particular father that our listeners might want to go to, to to really see prosopological exegesis, not just worked out by a contemporary author, but a patristic one? Um, well, certainly, um, I would say Justin Martyr and Irenaeus are quite explicit. Um, if we're trying to like like check the legitimacy was uh, of our own understandings, like Justin Martyr gives uh, 
some explicit and so does Irenaeus um, descriptions of what I'm calling prosopological exegesis, um, where they they explicitly say David didn't just speak from his own person; he was speaking from um, the person of sometimes the Christ, sometimes the Father, sometimes the people. Um, and then if we're not aware of this technique, right, of of slipping into an alternative person, uh, then we're going to misread our texts. So um, I, my my own personal favorite um, is probably Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo, um, just because I. I, I absolutely love Justin Martyr's use of the Old Testament. I find it fascinating. Um, it's probably my, the, it's probably the book from um, the biblical um, time period outside the Bible that interests me most, uh, because it's just it's this purported debate that Justin Martyr, a Christian, is having with uh, this Jew Trifo, and it's all about how to properly interpret the Old Testament. And I think Justin is underrated as. Um, as somebody who is an important theological innovator and an important stimulus to the tradition. So I think that people tend to look toward, you know, Origen as the first great system builder. Um, I think that um, our, our figures before that are doing some really foundational work that, um, that in, in, end up impacting folks like, you know, like Origen as he begins to build systems, like, you know, certainly Tertullian, uh, Irenaeus, and Justin Martyr would be leading lights uh, before him uh, that I think are, are really interesting to read. Well, goodness, it sounds like uh, at some point I'm going to need, I'm going to have to have you back uh, for another podcast on Justin. <laughs> sure, I love Justin. Oh, but uh, yeah, uh, to our listeners, uh, do pick up uh, Justin's dialogue. Uh, I think you will be surprised, uh, not just by his exegetical insights, but surprised uh, by his dialogue itself that uh, how, how, comfortably he moves and accurately he moves from his exegesis to his theological conclusions and and in the context of this dialogue even this uh, apologetic encounter matthew thank you yeah. so much so much for coming on the credo podcast and uh, talking about theological exegesis and the doctrine of the hey, thank you so much there matthew. you will Great find the latest issues of credo magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.